You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out the Navigator Series, it's a brand new lineup from Lacrosse. They have the Windrose for men and women. They also have the Atlas, and that's what I wore during my rut vacation this fall. Check them out. They're very comfortable. Uh, it's a traditional rubber boot kind of mixed with a traditional hunting hiking boot they've mashed it together and the outcome is the navigator series check it out at lacrossefootwear.com welcome to the land and legacy podcast we're your hosts adam keith and matt die this is your number one resource for all things land if you're interested in conservation habitat management hunting strategy and rural real estate this is the podcast for you And the myth, the legend, Justin Adams from Pure Air is on with us right now. Justin, how you doing, man? I'm excellent, Matt. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm better. I was a little sick earlier in the week, but man, I, I'm doing a lot better now, and um, I'm ready to talk about planting natives. How nerdy does that sound? I don't know. I, I uh, that's what I talk about all the time. So if that's nerdy, I guess that's what I'm doing 24 <laughs> seven. Well, man, I think uh, honestly, this is that time frame where people can get so wrapped up in holidays, deer season, post rut, this and that. Like oh, land absolutely. land management is one of those things that honestly, it is a back burner, hip pocket kind of thing. It's just not on the forefront of everyone's brain. Yet, this is a really valuable time from a land management perspective when it comes to establishing and planting natives. And I think it's only right that we consistently share that with everyone because again, it, it's just so easily forgotten. I was, I was actually on a property yesterday and talking with a gentleman and um, you know, he, he was, we've got I don't know, five or six acres talking about establishing some um, native grass and forbs and stuff back on that area. And sure. um it was pasture right now. It's a cool season. And I was like, yeah, honestly, you know, missing the window. And, and really, this is the time frame next year that you're going to be planting and kind of went through the whole, the whole, the whole spiel of it. And it kind of just reminded me of, man, you know, we need to, we need to reiterate the fact that, um, there is it's time. Yeah. This is the time. This is, this is when seed goes in the ground, but then, you know, it's not just a December, January time frame. It's, it's a lot longer, but you know, this is, this is the perfect window to talk about it. I want to get you on and, and, um, just remind people that, um, it's here. And so just kind of break, break it down a little bit of, of why right now you guys can be out there planting natives and, and what's that process like for, and I guess, why dormant season planting as well. So I'll just let you kind of run with it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And you're right. It is, it is kind of that, um, uh, forgotten time of the year a little bit. Just It's right after most of the rut has, uh, throughout the Midwest, most of the rut is over with now. There's a few spots that may still have a little bit of um, activity going on, but it's pretty much over with. And, uh, you know, after the after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, you kind of fall into this, everybody running around for the holidays and wrapping things up. But it's, it's an excellent time to um, not only plant natives now, but also you can still do some prep work now and plant in a few months. Um, in Missouri and throughout the Midwest, planting season is typically um, starts about November – 
December time frame. So, mm-hmm. so after the first few real heavy freezes, right? You you want some you want some frost and some freezes to to force everything to go dormant. And at that point in time, you're pretty safe to go ahead and plant because what you don't want is to plant your um, your seeds out there, your native seeds out there now, and then have a couple of warm spells where things start to germinate. But the the soil is cold enough now where it's not going to warm back up to that temperature. And there are some species that will germinate. There's annual species. There's things that don't need stratification or less. And so that's what I want to jump into now is um, why we're planting this time of year. Sure. Is the majority of native seeds uh, need stratification. And the high majority of those are particularly, uh, they need cold, moist stratification, Mm. which the best time for Mother Nature to provide that is over the winter. So you plant in the dormant season so that these seeds can experience that cold, moist stratification, which allows them to break their hard dormancy and germinate when the soil gets to about 60 or 65 degrees come springtime. So without that cold, moist stratification, majority of these seeds will not germinate until the following year. So um, it's, it's a little opposite of what we've all grown up knowing with planting flowers and planting species you typically do that in the spring Um, but native species if you think about how mother nature works these species bloom throughout the summer the spring summer and the fall and as their um, as that particular species goes dormant and then dries up in the fall and late fall the seeds actually become food they drop to the ground they're wind dispersed they're animal dispersed Um, they get spread out and that's when they actually get planted is over that winter season to allow them to germinate the following spring. And I think that right there, if everyone slows down, is out there thinking about it um, and, you know, making, connecting dots, let's say. And, and uh, you know, everyone's heard Kyle and Frank talking about, um, you know, quail food this time of the year. What that quail food looks like are, are the seeds that you're, that are doing exactly what you're talking about. You know, that, that um, shell and everything is opening up from the cold, the moisture, the, the freeze, not freeze thaw necessarily, but just like the wind breaking up in those shells and seed falling to the ground. Right. That's all part of the actual, you know, germination process that can occur with those seeds if they're not being consumed by birds like quail. But that that's over time why you plant, you know, natives that have seeds for for quail but it, it, it's just that connection of all these different things that come together um and, sure. and just looking at how nature works and we were walking through a, a field the other day and it and uh broom sedge little blue indian grass and uh, little blue you know when you're walking through that stuff right now and you've got a decent breeze you see the seeds just kind of puff in the air and it's just wind oh. blown and just dispersed and it's honestly it's like i love it I'm, I'm helping. I'm helping reseed right now just by walking right. through this time of the year. Well, you know, we're all probably very familiar with uh, with common milkweed and what milkweed pods look like, right? Everybody's not everybody, but a high majority of us have grabbed a milkweed pod and pulled the fuzz out to check the wind. Yes, the fuzz from those milkweed seeds blows everywhere. But if you actually pull one out with the seed still on it and throw that at the air, mm-hmm. any five mile an hour breeze, 10 mile an hour breeze will carry that seed. And, and that's what's happening right now in mother nature is these, these pods have opened up. If they still have seeds in them, yep. these pods have opened up and 
you know, the breeze blows and it blows the seed around and it disperses that. And that's what we're trying to replicate. Mother Nature is is planting natives right now, this time of year. If you go out to a prairie, if you go out to an area, if you've got an area that's got some uh, wildflowers growing, you can see, like you just mentioned, the little blue and Indian grass and some of these others that are being dispersed right now. Then Mother Nature is planting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the rainfall over the wintertime, the snow, the heavy snow, all that's going to do is draw that seed down to the soil and actually get that seed into the soil bank. And Mother Nature is providing the the cold, moist stratification so that the following spring things can start to germinate. And that's what we're doing right now. So I think... planting season has begun, yeah. but also, you know, there, the planting window is such a wide window. It's basically yes. from now until the end of March and sometimes even the end of April for Forbes and even into May and June for warm season grasses. So um, it's actually quite a long window where you can plant and still get germination and success from that. So not only is it time to plant, but also you can actually still get some prep work done and plant in February or March and still have success this coming spring and, and summer. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think with the proper planning, you know, things can still happen. You can still get that seed in the ground um, and, and be kind of off to the races for many, many years to come if that's the route you're looking for, whether it's, you know, planting or reestablishing um, an edge, a soft edge, if you're bleeding out from the timber into an open field or a food plot or just strictly converting right. fields back to natives. Um, you know, the other thing you were talking about, the, the grasses, you know, blowing in the wind, just windblown seed dispersal, but you know, things like, you know, the stick tights and um, the beggar's lice, everything. Beggar's all, that's, right. that's all just seed dispersal, guys. Everyone's walked through the woods here recently and seen that. All that right. is, a, is a part of the system. I think that's what makes, you know, planting and um, procuring natives and watching this native restoration, why we're so intrigued by it, because it's it's right here before our eyes. But if we don't slow down and think about it and look at it, then we miss such a beautiful thing that happens in nature every single year. You don't have to be observing it to know that's happening. But when you do observe and slow down, it's like, you know how like intricate all this is? You know, we're talking about the wind, the rain, the um, the moisture, the temperature, all that plays into effect of, you know, right. a little tiny seed that is so small that that has such a profound effect on it actually germinating and growing and creating, let's say, life for something else. I don't want to get philosophical yeah. or anything here, but but for real, it's a really complicated yet simple process. Uh, or I, I should say it's a simple process, but it's complex of the steps that need to occur. Um, but it's such an awesome thing. It produces so much value to the landscape and to wildlife right. and just – an overall enjoyment of a property, whether you care about the wildlife benefits or not, beautiful, <laughs> just flat out. Oh yeah, pretty. it's it's, a, it's amazing to to take a seed in something so small and and to be able to you know see that growing from that as a as a four or five foot tall plant in some cases a 12, 14 mm-hmm. foot tall plant with some of the Maximilian sunflowers yes. and, and cup plants and things like that that, that these seeds are smaller than a dime you know uh, pea sized and you get something. You know, I mean, we, we, we know that, right? We've seen that sure. with soybeans. We've seen that with corn and things like that. But, um, you know, some of these seeds, like you mentioned, are, are almost microscopic. You you see dust and um, you think that's 
you know, trash or something to be swept up and thrown away. But that's in our business, that's seed. That's right. And, you know, though we've, we're, we're actually doing a lot of cleaning right now and uh, the seed cleaners are going off. And we've got a lot of different mixes coming through. And, um, you know, some of the stuff is so tiny that you got to be really careful and make sure that it's, it's uh, uh, properly sealed up around the cleaners and, and some of these things are, are taken care of right because to the to the layman it looks like dust it looks like it's it's trash or it's just inert matter or something but as you get in close and kind of inspect it a little bit you see that it's it's actually seed and and uh some of that stuff is very valuable to the native species out there as far as animals and insects and and everything else so absolutely um, and, and actually that's one question i get asked a lot which is mm-hmm. Um, this is, and, and it's typically from, um, a crowd like this is uh, like your, like your listening audiences, you know, people will, will ask me, well, I want to plant something for deer or for turkeys or for quail or for something kind of very specific. Right. Yeah. Um, and they want to know what's good for that. Well, in all honesty, anything that we have is going to be good. If you're planting native plants, it's going to benefit all native animals. Right. That's just sure. how the system works. Now, there may be a few things that might be more specific and more tailored to certain, you know, certain species like like a partridge pea or an Illinois bundle flower for some of those small game and, and game bird species that it's a large enough seed they can actually eat it. But it's it's going to benefit everything that's native to the environment. So um, that's one thing that I think people um, are kind of surprised to hear. They they might think that's a sales pitch or that's a this or that. But it's you fact. can have a, a, a <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can have a, a monarch mix or a pollinator mix that's going to benefit the deer and the quail and the turkeys and the birds and the rabbits and everything else mm-hmm. because it's it's full of native species and those are native animals on the landscape. And, and that just further exemplifies the, the reasons why we are so, uh, prop- such proponents of diversity rather than just straight monocultures where monocultures tend to have more very specific roles and and benefits to exact species versus right. a broad spectrum of things where I can just convert these acres to diverse natives and I'm going to benefit a whole host of things versus just a single single species and that's where I think a lot of us um, that listen to the podcast and everything are that's where our mindset's at it's 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 a whole host of benefits and a long list of of um things that can enjoy and and utilize these plants so you know it with all that being said it's important while we're having the conversation of hey this is this is that window to do it this is the window to get that stuff in the ground If, if you've done your your seed bed preparation or anything like that you know um be sure to reach out to you guys and see what options are out there. Or if you have questions just regarding the propagation, germination, and, and getting started, how do you even get started with planting? Reach out right. to Pure Air. Justin, how, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, they can email me, justin at pureairnatives.com, or they can uh, contact us through the website. Is simple enough. Yep. Um, just go to pureairnatives.com. And just fill out the contact form. Let it know. Let me know, you know, a little bit about um, where you're planting. That's kind of uh, very uh, specific for us to make a mix for you, and also what your goals are. You know, those are the two things that I need the most 
to be able to put together something that's going to work very specific for you mm-hmm. um, as a customer. So, and that's, that's really all I need. I mean, shoot me an email that you want to talk about. Um, you got questions about it. You want to talk about site prep. You can actually still be doing the site prep now that uh, in fact, um, I've got a, a new piece of property that we're going to be doing some work on and yep. um, you can still get out and, and use chemical and herbicide to kill off some of that fescue. And, um, and even, you know, even if it gets late into the year and you get into January, you can still plant your natives. And again, they're not going to germinate until that probably May timeframe, mm-hmm. but we're going to get warm days and those cool season grasses like fescue are going to pop back up. You can actually germinate those yeah. after you planted your natives but before they germinate. So there's a lot of different ways we can get this done. And, and if I know it can be confusing and a little overwhelming. So, you know, feel free to, to email me, justin at pureairnatives.com or just go to the website and contact us, pureairnatives.com. Perfect, man. Well, when are you killing the big deer? You know, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. I haven't seen a big deer in a while. Just uh, <laughs> just pictures. I've been, I've been all over the state running around. Um, oh, here you go. Not 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 hunting as much as i as i'd like to but um you know i've got a lot of uh, properties to visit and a lot of landowners that uh, we're, we're working with so yeah it's been a good time i've seen a lot of other people's deer but um me too <laughs> haven't had luck yet you know but yeah. we got alternative method season coming up that's uh, right in a few more weeks so that's exactly right I'm kind of putting those those eggs in that basket cool man well wish the best of luck appreciate your your time today and just uh sending that general reminder of of such a valuable time and and guys we're gonna get back into a lot of the habitat management podcast here in the next few weeks um as adam and i are hitting the road actually this weekend and really really putting the miles on um covering tons and tons of ground so um hope you guys are ready to kind of make that mind shift um that change here but justin thanks again man we appreciate it hey thanks for having me i appreciate your time you bet all right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and I have got Kyle and Frank here with me uh, on this podcast. We are on the road. Currently made it safely to Topeka, Kansas, and going to work a property tomorrow uh, with the new landowner. So excited to get these guys um, out there to work with this gentleman. So we'll probably have another podcast with you guys the following week as a recap from tomorrow's consultation. But. We've got an awesome podcast here for you guys. Um, This week, as you can tell by the title, we're really going to be focusing a lot on the value of native forages and in comparison to tillable ag ground that a lot of people put a ton of value on when it comes to, you know, anything from deer, turkey to even quail, as you guys have had some experience with here recently. So, um Let's just jump right on into this thing, and I'll let you guys kind of open it up with some recent observations that you guys have had here uh, during quail season, specifically here in the great state of Kansas on some public ground. And then from there, we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes, but there's a lot to be able to talk on from your guys' again, experience in just hunting as well as managing ground and what you're looking for when it comes to the balance and the importance of native forages as well as the potential to incorporate ag fields. Sure. So yeah. Um, thanks. With it. Yeah. Thanks Matt for, for having us. Um, Colin and I've, Colin and I have had the opportunity here recently uh, to hunt some really, really cool public ground in Kansas where we were hunting 
wild Bob Whites in a landscape that had some ag fields in the form of soybeans or or corn. Uh-huh. But we also had on this same property quail that were never associated with these ag fields, that they were persisting totally on native forages and doing really, really well. So we, we got to, to see that. And earlier in the year, I got to hunt western Kansas in an area on private land that was very similar. So some quail were associated with the rangeland ecosystem, uh, sand, sage, prairie, lots of plum thickets, lots of native forages, no crop fields in sight, but we also found some birds near crop fields. So we've had the fortune this year to, to hunt quail in some some pretty varied landscapes. And sure. We want to kind of share what we have found uh, in terms of where we located these birds and in terms of what they were eating and, and how, how they were thriving in these different landscapes. And as we were talking pre-show here, I think that just your guys' experience, and, and yes, we're talking about your guys' experience hunting quail this year, but what this actually means for a land manager is is where to put the importance on managing a landscape or a property and where you may be hunting and having success doesn't extrapolate and, and, and equal where you need to put your value at in the actual management of a property. We'll explain that further, but um, that's kind of like, th- this is not just a, a quail focused podcast. This mindset um, can be, and I'll bring in tons of examples from the whitetail side of things and you guys as well with, with turkeys, I'm sure. But, you know, this is not just a quail specific thing. This is a general property management idea that, hey, we're, we're going to, we want to bring, but we're simply utilizing your guys' most recent experience to highlight this mindset and objective. Yeah. And a perfect example <clears throat> We seem to get caught up with, you know, where we kill something or where we find something, um, uh, especially in the quail world. Sure. Uh, uh, Frank and I are talking to people all the time, whether it's landowners, just the general public, uh, people using public areas in Missouri. And so you hunt quail November, December, and January. Mm -hmm. Well, you may kill quail. Sometimes you kill quail. Sometimes you don't kill quail in the same place that they would be raised so they're sometimes we're killing quail that are living in a different part of their habitat different um um, types of habitat than than where they were raised and so this example he mentioned the soybean fields right so we actually hunted some soybean field edges on purpose knowing that there would be birds there we've hunted this area in the past uh this this particular public land and and we found birds. Mm-hmm. And when we break open their crop, they're full of soybeans. Naturally, because they're right there against right. the crop. That's what. So you there's so there's grass and forbs, and then there's thickets right along the edge. I mean, it's it's textbook, right? I right, mean, right. That, so a lot of people, though, would, would go into that situation, harvest quail or, or find some birds, and say, man, I need to go to my property. If I'm going to – if I was going to make – air quote textbook habitat wow see i need uh, a soybean plot <laughs> yeah. and then i need a, a plum th- strip and yep. then i need some grass and forbs next to that well here's the problem that worked for harvesting quail but we're there in december those birds weren't raised in the soybean field we killed them at the edge of a soybean field 
they're using the edge of a soybean field, but they weren't raised there. Sure. So every place that you install such a practice is now not available for production, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So from our standpoint, we're trying to maximize production. They can... Production from a quail standpoint. From from a quail standpoint, let's say. Yep. And it could be for deer, turkeys, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But our point is, um, and we and we know from from doing radio telemetry work, sometimes for for fall movements, they may move hundreds of yards up to a mile, right, to relocate for winter habitat. So where you find them doesn't necessarily mean that's where they were raised. So we need to separate the two and say, as managers, we need we want to grow as many quail as we can. I don't really care where they spend the winter. If if I don't grow them in the first place, then I have, then you have no I have opportunity, no to kill opportunity them in, the in the winter. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, the next part of this is we also killed birds that were completely unassociated with food plot areas. Yeah, um, yeah. We killed uh, and found several coveys that were nowhere near grain crops, mm-hmm. whether they were planted by some kind of permitting farmer or the the land managers uh, for the public land agency planted food plots. They were in the middle of the prairie. They were yep. near associated with some plump thickets, of course, or some other woody cover. Um, but there was not a crop field in sight. And we busted their crops open after we um, we harvested them. They were full of western ragweed, which is a yep. which is a just an awesome seed mm-hmm. from a from an energy standpoint. They were full of sunflower which is a high-fat content yep. seed. Uh, and they were full of legumes, so we found lespedeses in there and some native, some not native. Uh, so they were thriving. These birds were very, very healthy. And they were going to make it through the entire winter season on these non-native foods. Now, the key was there was protective cover nearby, of course. Non-native. Fr- as, excuse as, me. Native. Excuse me. On native. these native foods. Okay. Sorry. Yep. On these native foods. Um, now, there was woody cover nearby. Mm-hmm. As it's important with all quail habitat, bobwhite quail habitat, uh, and there was and they had to be abundant. So there had to be a lot of these seeds because they're very very small. These quail need to be able to find a lot of them. But in this landscape where they had done quite a bit of burning, there were these seeds available. So uh, quail, what what we're saying, and, and I think this this goes to Kyle's point as public land managers, and I think as as quail managers for a long time, we, we've had our foundation wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Our foundation has tended to be on food plots and woody cover, uh, particularly food plots. And that's the wrong foundation. That's that could be a key point, a key part of your quail management. If you choose the woody cover is is absolutely necessary. But the foundation should be on nesting and brood habitat with the primary emphasis on brood habitat for Bob White quail. So we need to be rethinking what our foundation is. It's it's not about where you harvest them that that type of let's say landscape and those vegetation types makes quail persist. It allows them to survive. It's part of the let's say the quail life cycle, but if they don't have the other key elements that got them to this stage, then you don't have quail period. Correct. Exactly, and and that whole surviving the winter part and a lot of the quails range is only two three months that it's really right 
gets critical, and they can do it on native foods. So, Certainly. Again, we find them at row crop edges. They'll use it for convenience. You eat at McDonald's sometime. It may not be the best for you, but you eat there because it's convenient. Mm -hmm. It's right along the highway. (laughs) But if there wasn't McDonald's and nothing against McDonald's or Wendy's or any other place, you could still survive. You would eat other foods. So same thing for quail. And I think that, again, from from any hunter out there, and you guys talk to hunters, wide range of hunters. You guys manage public Mm -hmm. lands. You know, whether it's a, a guy who hunts deer or a guy who hunts spring turkeys, what seems to be that, that takeaway that, you know, all these stories kind of revolve around? For me, it's, hey, guys, I was in this this pinch point. Um, maybe there were oaks there or maybe there's this creek bottom, and that's where I killed the deer. That's where I, I harvested them, and I just need more of that mm-hmm. on the property or, or I'm just going to hunt those areas because that's what makes big deer. That's mm-hmm. what makes me successful as a hunter. But from, from just a, if, if a hunting observation, when you look at the full calendar year, it's really easy to be super skewed from your mindset of how many hours do you spend in the field? Let's say as a hunter in the spring observing whitetails. You, are you watching them where they're um, choosing to have a fawn? Are you watching what bucks are foraging on as their antlers are beginning to develop? Because that habitat there in the springtime is just as important as an element as you being successful in the fall time. But because you only spend time or the, the majority of your time spent outdoors observing whitetails is during the fall, your sense of necessity from their habitat is heavily skewed to things of the fall for us what we hear all the time is oaks white oak acorns mast producing trees because they eat a ton of mast a a majority during the fall time but in all reality there's places where whitetails persist and thrive where there's no mast production from an oak species period they don't have to have that but it does help but again we're so skewed from our observation, our time spent in the woods. You guys see the same thing with, with quail hunters as well when they try and then extrapolate that out or move that over to a management perspective. Yep, yep. yep. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, Kyle and I were hunting last year on a piece of ground, and uh, we had made a walk, and we ran into this old-time hunter um, that had, in his lifetime, probably harvested hundreds of bob whites. And um, he said, what this place needs, we were hunting some, some public land in Missouri, what this place needs is more millet. Uh, when we had millet, we had a lot of quail. Well, I'm sure in those days there was a lot more quail, not because of the millet, because the habitat in the whole county or the whole landscape where he was hunting was great for producing quail. Mm-hmm. They were just going to the millet fields out of convenience, as Kyle talked about, to, to sure. To find food and he was conflating finding quail near millet as being what they need to produce and and, and in greater numbers and great yeah right and to have more quail and we hear that whether it be milo we need to plant more milo we need to plant more soybeans now there 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 comes a point somewhere in the northern latitudes where some kind of of grain food plot whether it be corn soybeans or whatever could mean the difference between good quail survival and some kind of a winter catastrophe 
because of the of the harsh winter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are at some level in the northern latitudes. Not sure what that is, uh, but certainly if we're talking about, um, you know, probably northern Kansas south, you know, quail can do just fine most winters without some kind of a, of, of a grain food plot. So sure. yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We we do um, we do hear that from hunters. You know, we need to be planting more milo, more millet, things like that. And But what we don't hear is, you know, we need more bare ground. We need more forbs. We need more ragweed. We don't really hear that. Again, it's it's a bias of where they're finding birds in the wintertime. And probably where they're choosing to go and hunt these birds, too. And I, I'm guessing, but from your guys' public land experience, do you find most hunting pressure of birds and, and coveys yeah, when you get into birds that have been pressured, do, do you find that pressure being heaviest around those crop edges and fields? Or do you guys find, you know, let, let's say a full covey uh, or greater size covey more of the prairie situation late season versus busted up smaller singles and, and smaller coveys around the crop edges? Bingo. You're, yeah. You hit it right on the head. So when, we, you, when you hunt the crop edges, especially later in the season, you're going to see wilder birds. In fact, one of the soybean edges, we had a covey that flushed 80 yards long on us. I mean, they oh, wow. played the game. They flew immediately across the road off site. <laughs> uh, I mean, they knew exactly they knew what, was happening. what was happening. They have been hunted. Um, you do sometimes see smaller coveys, you know, mm-hmm. as it progresses. Um, the The reason people do it is because it's more predictable. It's it's no different, same reason that on our public lands we manage, we get a lot of people, you know, want deer food plots, Mm -hmm. whether it's turnips or a mix or wheat. Um, It's the same thing. If you want to sit there and see 14 deer in the evening, I mean, who doesn't want to see 14 deer, rather than trying to figure out where are they passing through here and Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same for birds. People will gravitate. Hey, I know there's probably going to be some birds hanging out near this crop edge. So it makes it a little more predictable than hunting wide open prairie with woody draws through it. Oof, they could be a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But when we do find birds in those situations, and we'll talk more about how we even target that, we narrow down that search based on disturbance. But when we did find in this particular hunt birds in those more open prairie areas, we were, I mean, this is mid-December, and we were seeing um, coveys of 15-plus birds. I mean, nice covey Old size. Coveys, like, yeah. wow, I don't think anyone's been into these birds. They haven't found them yet. Uh, you also, sometimes, they don't fly 250 yards, you know. They mm-hmm. they fly, you counts. get into some singles. They're, mm-hmm. they're not near as as wily. Yeah. And, and, and that, again, is because uh, of the hunter's choice to pursue, and I don't want to say the, the easiest, but let's say the low-hanging fruit most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. same thing, where is all the pressure on public ground from uh, a, a turkey hunter's point of view or, or a uh, whitetail point of view? It's in and around the food plots. Everyone's trying to get back off the, the edges and the less, hunter, the less pressured places. But when we do that... Um, we have to keep in mind that, again, what you're seeing and observing, let's say the months of hunting season, October generally through portions of January in most states, that's a small snapshot of what's important is that allowing these 
great species to pers- persist. And I think that y- you got you guys certainly hear a, a, a ton, a ton from the hunters and, and their feedback because you guys ask them, you know, and there's questionnaires and whatnot for um, your guys' roles uh, as biologists. But, um, you know, they have tons of opinions. Mm-hmm. But as land managers, a land manager, and this is n- not to take anything away from a hunter, but from a land manager standpoint, you're out there January all the way through December observing and watching versus just the hunting perspective of things. That is, again, that snapshot, that small window um, of time in, in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'll relate a story uh back to that 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 point you're making uh, I, I did a quail telemetry project in Kansas uh, when I was just got out of school it was my first kind of real job after school and one of the one of the the cool things that I saw with quail that kind of really opened my eyes I'd been a quail hunter my whole life so this was my probably my mid-20s but I'd been a quail hunter my entire life and hunting mostly in the in the winter time in the fall winter never really you know, you hear birds whistling in the summer, but you're really not thinking about quail or bird hunting until it's, or quail in general until it's time to hunt them, mm-hmm. right? Well, when I was with this project, I was immersed in quail every day, all day. And what was really cool is where I was catching birds, say, in March and early April to put radios on them, I would see these birds make these small migrations from heavily uh, wooded kind of draws and drains up into the highest point of the habitat, more open landscapes. That's where the males would go and whistle, and the females would go up there and, and uh, raise their broods. And in the wintertime, they would kind of suck back down into where I caught them the previous year. So they were making distinct movements from wintering grounds to summer summering areas in places where uh, if the habitat hadn't been good for these birds, if we were only focusing on the habitat where these birds were in the wintertime, and we didn't focus on this breeding type habitat, there would be really no place for them to successfully breed. Mm-hmm. So we've got to think about it uh, from a year-round perspective. And, and seeing these sort of mini-migration or these mini-movements from from really hardcore winter cover to more open uh, nesting cover really was, was my first experience, and it really broadened my thinking of, of the importance of of quail habitat, not only in the winter, but year round. And um, we as hunters, and I think as land managers, really need to start thinking more about this breeding habitat uh, than we ever have. I think you're right. And I think, honestly, we'll we'll, we'll slide in a direction with the podcast um, and say, let's let's break down whitetails, turkeys, and quail, three big main game species. And let's break down to where we think, okay, most people are harvesting each species. And then what do we think is the most key element that most properties, public, private, doesn't matter, is actually missing from a, um, an active management portion of the property? What window is the most forgotten but most important window? And I would agree it's, it's most likely for, for each one of those instances or each one of those species, it's either a uh, nesting or a brood rearing, young rearing stage. But let's go through those and, and just hopefully paint the picture of 
okay, all these elements that are out there where people find the success, but what actually is super important. And I think that there'll probably be quite a bit of similarity to what honestly is all important that through these species, if we want to make them even more uh, prolific on the landscape, that it's going to hopefully turn a lot of eyeballs into actually managing in this way and promoting X type of vegetation on the landscape. So let's make it easy. White-tailed deer. Where are people harvesting the majority of white-tailed deer? Would you think across, across the country every fall? A lot of it's either in food plots and or ag field edges, I would I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, well, yeah, I, would, I would say the same that, thing. I mean, um, food plot edges, ag field edges. Feeders uh, in some states. <laughs> yes, right? some yeah, states, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I would say. Some kind of food source. Some uh, Maybe an oak flat. In the yeah. timber or, or an oak ridge top, something something like that, but something certainly associated yep. with food or let's say an edge. Yeah. Two different types of vegetation types coming together. Right. Some right. somewhere along that. I think anybody listening would would agree. Yeah. From your guys' perspective, diehard deer hunters, you guys understand whitetails better than most people. What do you think is the most important time frame that a white-tailed deer needs that it, that is underrepresented on the landscape, and and then describe what type of cover that is. Well, twofold. Yeah. What's the most important time frame? So depends. I mean, deer herd health in general. Let's assume we're talking about that. Antler growth would also go along with. Uh, the does being more likely to have twins if they're healthier. Mm-hmm. Let's assume all of that is coming from. Um, it's going to be the rest of the year's nutrition, right? Sure. I mean, if if we're trying to grow big deer, giant antlers, it doesn't really matter as much what he's eating in October. His right. antlers are already grown. It's done, right? Right. I mean, if he gets really run down, it's it may help build back that threshold. Right. Yeah, it it may help work into the next year but yeah it's going to be that spring summer time when the when the doe is you know nursing the fawns and when the i mean that's when she's going to be the most run down and that that you hit you hit the nail on the head there and it it comes right there at that the spring green up yep when when all the deer their 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 coat is molting um the first sprigs of life in the in the spring are happening because for multiple factors bucks they're beginning to start growing in their antlers. They're starting to put in that um, additional nutrients and energy into antler production. And then the does are beginning to either give birth or, or they're getting to the point where right they're, they're lactating. And that takes a ton of energy out of a doe. And so, but what, what does the habitat look like for a fawn to be reared successfully and for a buck to have the nutrition that it needs as well as the nutrition for a doe to be able to lactate and typically speaking that 15 16 percent um crude protein in their diet during those two that during that window for both bucks and does is what they need for their maintenance of their body for them to persist and be able to carry out those for me when i look at it it is that old field type habitat that is the earliest 
germinating, sprouting cover and forage. Super when it's young, it's super tender, super palatable. They're hitting it hard, and in a month's time, it's ideal, perfect fawning habitat. Yep. Well, it's diverse native plants, right? That's it. Early I mean, succession. So of think plants. think of all the the big deer in row crop country, right? Sure. How many deer do you see out eating in a cornfield in June? Zero, because they don't very, eat corn very in June. <laughs> they don't eat. Well, let, let's even let's even back it up into um, let's just say April fifteenth. In much of like the absolute dominant ag areas, let's say Central Illinois, Iowa, North Missouri, Kansas, how many ag fields are actually planted April fifteenth? Yeah, not very many. Very, like very like none, yeah. hardly any. And, and if it, it is, it's corn. It's corn, and, yeah. it, hasn't and, really and it hasn't germinated yet. yet. <laughs> yeah, right. But guess what is germinated and sprouting and growing? It's your early successional plants. And so that crop component, it, it, at that point, that window that we've already now just identified is super important. Right. Not it's doing nothing. It's it's right. dirt. Right. Or, unless you're doing the cover crop situation, which hopefully you are. Hopefully we've encouraged you to do that. Yeah. But if not. If it's just tilled dirt, or it's just seeded r- recently and not even germinated, it's nothing. Yeah, right. doing nothing. Yeah. How many acres, from from a hunting standpoint, um, you know, are are we associating with with great great habitat or quality? Everyone wants to flock to the Midwest because of the row crops, but that really important window it's not doing anything for, it's not usable space for most of the year for no a, for a deer a quail or a turkey right. no not at all i i think that's a very big mis- misunderstanding from the general landscape is yeah there's other areas you know in the, in those regions that are very very attractive and provide good stuff but those those crop fields don't do nearly what People think that they do from a, a whitetail specific, let's say, a, advantage of having that on the landscape. Sure. What What about turkeys, guys? We're, you know, let's think spring turkey season, spring gobbler season. I, I want to start this one off because the turkeys are the ultimate example. So you're always hunting them in the spring, right? Now yep. some big timber guys would, would have a different scenario. But most of us are hunting where we have a mix of timber and open fields. Uh-huh. And – what are you trying? You're trying to shoot a bird in full strut that comes gobbling in, right? <laughs> comes 300 yards, struts circle yeah. around your decoy, and yeah. right? Picture perfect. Well, they don't do that in six-foot-tall grass. They do right. that in really short, a clover field, uh, maybe a, a crop field, uh, a, you know, bean stubble field, uh, maybe winter wheat, uh, maybe a hay, hay pasture or an overgrazed pasture, right? Yep, yep. Okay, so we're killing turkeys in short vegetation. That's where gobblers want to strut. Or maybe on a, a timbered ridgetop. My point is, though, just because you kill a turkey in a short vegetated field doesn't mean you should turn your whole farm into that, right? You, no. you turkeys wouldn't persist if you all you had was a, a short, right. lip-high fescue pasture. Well, nobody thinks that you should do that. right. But with these other species, there tends to be this gravitations toward, <laughs> well, this is where I kill them. That's what I should make my farm look like. Correct. With turkeys, nobody has that thought that mm-hmm. I know of. No. You recognize this is a seasonal movement. It's only for a certain period of time. Now, on the flip side, the reason I wanted to open this 
part on turkeys is my Paint Creek farm in, in Kansas. Mm-hmm. So all of our open fields are CRP. Yeah. So we have just the opposite issue. Sure. We are the we are the nesting habitat in the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We get which is great because all the hens want to come nest on us. Yep. But we have to make a conscious effort to install some shorter. areas that are short enough to strut in, yeah. or else I don't have any gobblers. There's nowhere to strut. So yeah. they strut on the neighbors, and then the hens come nest on us. So we have to intentionally make some areas in our CRP fields so that we have strutting areas. Displaying dominance as a gobbler is super important to the the mating rituals, the breeding yes. sequences, but that's only in the spring. Again, that's that small snapshot. So we can't have all this just wide open, short no. grass, and 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 still have the turkeys persist. There's many other elements to a turkey being persistent on the landscape. And so instead of having, I mean, I do have a few um, food plots on that area for deer, so those can function sometimes mm-hmm. as that, but. Before we even had food plots for deer, basically I'm making a, my food plot, air quotes, as a strutting zone. I'm, I'm sure. making a certain couple spots on this farm. This is where you're going to strut, and it works great. They, that's right where they go, so they're a lot more predictable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we got to manage the rest of the farm for production of turkeys. And, and what does that, to you guys, look like from a from a production of turkeys what what is that window of importance for turkeys that you're like if you want consistent turkey numbers this is what the element you have to have that really is is underrepresented on the landscape what does that look like well i think it's it's very similar to quail in that as a game bird it uh it's all in your reproductive rates Mm -hmm. and so nesting success is very important. Brood survival is very, very important. Uh, in fact, that's probably what's limiting our turkey growth in, in in much of the country is is we don't have adequate brood cover, which we're talking about old field vegetation that you were talking about with the whitetails, uh, stuff that's knee high or or smaller that's open at ground level. Ragweed stands mm-hmm. are a perfect example of that. Old field vegetation that doesn't have a lot of thatch is a perfect example of that. So brood habitat is very limiting with our turkeys, and that would be the key thing that I would focus on. Nesting, you know, we talk about nesting with quail, and Kyle and I don't worry too much about nesting cover because we've seen quail will nest pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. It, and, and I think turkeys are, are much the same way. I've, and I'm sure we've all seen this as turkey hunters. We'll stumble into a, a turkey nest while we're hunting, that may be under a blowdown sure. in the timber yep. or in a, in a grassy against creek just a bottom. Against a log, a single yep. log. Against a log or in the middle of a grass field. Yep. Yep. So they'll kind of nest uh, in a lot of different habitats. But what's critical is when those eggs hatch, then do the, do the chicks have adequate bare ground mm-hmm. and adequate overhead screening cover but then also adequate insects because yes. insects are critical for the first two weeks, huge. absolutely critical. And then even after the first two weeks, they are just a, a huge portion of their diet. So I, I believe it's, I believe it's 70% for turkeys for like the first six weeks of life. Yeah, 70% it, it, is, is insect diet. Yeah. And if you'll watch, and if you'll watch a group of young, young turkeys, even into October, 
they're out there picking up the last oh, yeah. grasshoppers that they can find. They're chasing grasshoppers all the way through the field. Early in the mornings when the grasshoppers are a little slow because of the temperatures, that's perfect time for the mm-hmm. turkeys to go out and grab them. So I know that, that we really worry a lot about brood habitat, and, and that is one of our probably our most limiting factor with wild turkeys that we don't think about. You know, we think about turkeys when we hunt them in the springtime. We don't, and then we think about them in the fall. Say, well, what was our hatch like? We're not seeing a lot of broods this year, or we are seeing a lot of poults. But we don't think about why are we seeing a lot of poults? Why aren't we seeing a lot of poults? And most of that is through brood survival. Here's the glory on turkeys, too. So, you know, that old field habitat that's important for a lot of species, or even if our grasslands are managed properly, mm-hmm. we can have a lot of forbs, which then yep. has lots of weeds and, and all that good stuff. But properly managed timber... All of a sudden, if we've got the herbaceous understory because we've thinned our timber, opened it up, which, of course, is good for the deer, blah, 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 yep. guess what? They can raise poults in there, too. So Absolutely. instead of a lot of properties where the timber is closed canopy, all of a sudden they may be roosting there, but that's the, and they may eat acorns in there in the fall, but that's the only time that that's really available to them. And so all summer they can't raise their poults in there because there's no... no vegetation that attracts insects so they have to move into the two or three old fields on this entire property you manage that timber right and the usable space acres just skyrockets you know it's to to bring into i guess let's say the reality of what it is you guys are talking about from the from the broods you know if you're seeing broods consistently during the spring late spring through the summer how many times have you actually seen a brood in the timber, like deeper in the timber? Maybe on the edge, as they're hearing you coming, they're running out of the yeah, field, yeah. but they're not in the timber. Like, yeah, that is no. not a portion uh, of their range. And I would assume in areas that do have, that is, let's say, bigger timber, those turkey population, you know, probably not as good as, as other areas, one, but two, you probably would see, if you guys did radio telemetry on them, a pretty big migration from summer ranges into some of the fall moving deeper into the timber where there's more mast but they have to have that open element to be able to raise and bring young and you would see that movement across the landscape if you track turkeys like that yeah that that's a good point and and that's one of the things so for instance in missouri when our if, if we look back in the conservation of wild turkeys in missouri our turkey population in missouri got critically low levels in the Mm -hmm. 40s and 50s such that they were only confined to a few localized spots in the ozark in the deep timber right in the ozarks basically because they couldn't be reached for hunting not because it was the the best habitat it's because they were fairly protected from hunting and and some other stressors well as we started to um, do our trap and translocate efforts in missouri the folks that were doing this naturally thought, well, the only places turkeys can persist in Missouri would be the deep Ozarks. That's where they were. That's where we trapped the birds for translocation. That's got to be the best habitat. When we started stocking them in North Missouri, they blew up mm-hmm. uh, much. People were saying, Hey, let's try North Missouri. Let's try North Missouri. And other folks were saying, no, nah, it'll never work up there. Well, once they tried it, they exploded. Well, they exploded because they were in a naive habitat and not a lot of predators on the ground, but, primarily because brood survival was off the charts right because there was lots of open habitat those deep ozark woodlands particularly when they've succeeded past that 
early successional stage mm-hmm. and they're in the 30 40 year old timber and there's just not much forage on the ground there's not there's no weeds and, and there's no insects because there's no weeds and, and managing i did not mean to cut you off no no absolutely but but restoring or managing let's say woodlands or restoring your glade components in in our area southern missouri that's why it's important to have those turkeys because those areas can suffice for like the old field stands that are bringing in the insects they are more open grassland dominant with heavy for production you have to have those elements to really make an impact on turkeys yeah yeah you you have to have that and that's one of the things that, that we struggle with if you look across our landscape in a lot of places in the midwest It'll either be closed canopy timber mm-hmm. or it'll be uh, grazing pastures or grazing land that's like a pool table, grazed yeah. down to the dirt. Well, there's very, very little in between, sure. right? Well, a lot of these species that we care about need that in-between stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's really low, that has a low availability on the landscape. So we need to start adding that vegetation that's in between that pool table in that tall closed canopy timber and we can provide that easy enough we just need to have the management to do it and it's funny because you look at like let's say the spectrum of vegetation you're looking at extreme left side and extreme right Mm -hmm. side like there's no in between but when you look at the spectrum the spectrum is really really wide but why can't we get that in between of let's let's just give us four foot of vegetation all the way up to 12 foot like that right there is is super beneficial for so many different species but you just don't find that like you're saying on the landscape it's it's sky high trees or it's nothing where's the where's the middle ground it's either so overutilized that it's a pool table yes or it's been completely abandoned yeah so underutilized then underutilized (laughs) to the point that they just gave up and and yeah now it's closed canopy forest or solid cedars or whatever yeah yeah it's funny it's like why why can't we just again find that middle ground of management or utilizing the landscape and if we did that we'd probably increase the amount of available acres that was the middle ground of the habitat spectrum you know change the way we utilize the ground now we can offer this great habitat in 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 exchange for that it's not a hard game to figure out it's just that we have to educate people about these elements that are missing on the landscape and encourage people to get out there and make these changes yeah and you're right and i think venues such as as your as your podcast uh and other venues are are importing and are important in bringing that message that uh you know we as hunters we uh, keep harping on this point we as hunters tend to think in terms of where we're finding game to hunt mm-hmm. where are we finding these these animals to shoot uh, but we we got to start thinking about the whole year long and how these animals are produced and where they're produced and what they need those are our limiting factors and and, and i think that education is a, is a critical part of that absolutely so so what about quail guys we, we kind of hit or initiated the podcast with you know where you guys have had some success, but let's let's jump back into that from the quail side of things, and then talk about that missing component. So very similar, the brood rearing is is the limiting mm-hmm. factor, certainly in the Midwest, uh, across most of their range, probably. We either have too much grass. If you go down south, say to Texas, yeah, 
uh, drought years, they have too little grass. There, there right. is no. So yeah. in our neck of the woods, it's too much grass and no weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we need, we need that brood. We have to produce birds first. They'll nest about anywhere if there's any type of whether it's foxtail, broom sedge, little blue, whatever. They'll figure it out. Fescue. They'll nest in fescue, but they can't raise their brood. If it's mm-hmm. ungrazed fescue, there's, the brood right. can't move around. Um, if it's overgrazed, of course, they can't have a nest there in the first place. But So that brood cover is, is what's lacking in most cases. They can migrate to, to woody cover. Woody cover is an important component of it. And, and in the winter, they'll go to even heavier woody cover. But um, that's been probably overplayed in the Midwest uh, more than anything is is woody cover and and then of course food plots and that's just the nature of the beast. Food plots are what's cool. It's hip. It's on TV, right? Yeah. It has been for 20 years. For you plant this and you can have 180 inch deer. You do this and well, they may come eat at that food plot Eventually, once in a while. They may get there, but he yeah. didn't grow 180 inches of antlers, right? Because you planted that there. That's Absolutely. just not how the game's played. But so yeah. For quail, it's it's the same thing. It's that middle ground that we don't cover. Uh, quail are similar. You know, uh, sometimes a rooster Bob White and in April will be sitting up in a tree mm-hmm. singing. Well, that doesn't mean we should plant trees all over. He right. just went to the highest spot to, to make sure his it. to project it. Well, yep. there's places in Texas and Oklahoma where there's not a tree around. Right. They still whistle. They still breed. So mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. using that tree because it's there, but he doesn't have to have that tree. Certainly. So we need we need to not misread some of the stuff that we see and experience and, and recognize what they truly need. Yeah, that, and that is where, you know, we've talked on previous podcasts about the quail research that Kyle and I have done. And, yeah. and I think that was the biggest take-home message, two, two big take-home messages out of, out of our quail research. One was the, the importance of usable space across the landscape. It's a it's a story that's been told in the quail world for a long time. We just haven't paid much attention to it. We need to start doing that. The second is the importance of diverse vegetation, grasses, forbs, for brood cover, uh, mainly forbs. Uh, it, it's critical. And disturbance. Disturbance is a key factor for quail. You can have grasslands, but if they're not disturbed, quail aren't going to use them, right? So... Uh, not only just having good grasslands, like say a, a CRP field that's just that's full of grasses, quail aren't really going to use that. That's mm-hmm. not usable space. You start adding some disturbance, maybe a fire every now and then, and if you can graze it, bingo. And then you've got disturbance, and then you've got the weeds that come with it, and you've got the insects that come with that, and you've got the winter food that comes with the weeds, and you've got the whole gamut of of the life history needs of a quail right there. So. Uh, we, we really need to pay much more attention to brood habitat. If that's one thing that, that I could per, prescribe for any quail manager is brood habitat. Yeah. He just touched on something with the disturbance in those grasslands. So let's go back to our Kansas public land hunt that we started this off uh-huh. with, right? And I made mention that we would get around to, to key in on these disturbances. So we found birds along these soybean edges. Well, in the big prairie parts of this wildlife area we started figuring out we've been hunting there a couple years we started figuring out that there's some old abandoned food plots or there's some um i remember one piece that we noticed last year was burned so we intentionally hunted it this year we knew it was burned last year we said we got to hunt that piece 
we found a covey in 15 minutes in that yeah. piece. Wow. I mean, it was that predictable. Mm-hmm. These old abandoned food plots. Well, they'd have lots of foxtail, ragweed. It was something, uh, a disturbance out there. Right, something had happened. And, and so birds <clears throat> were gravitating probably to those, even though they're, they're idle food plots. Yep. There was birds around those, and, and they were pretty predictable. When we'd see one of those, we could hunt and find a covey within a couple hundred yards usually somewhere around there, break them open, they're full of native seeds. The, the neat thing about that, those birds that were living along those soybean edges, I said, well, they're not being produced in the soybeans. Right. The birds that are hanging around these idle food plots, guess where they probably had their broods all summer? Those idle food in plots. In the same deal. Yeah. So that's usable space year-round all year of a sudden. Round. That's well, maximizing yes. a property. So now we're producing birds in it, and we're also shooting birds mm. in it or near it. So. Yeah. Yeah, and... and while those were idle food plots, that's just what happened to be the management. Uh, if it had been a, a small burn po- area, one mm-hmm. that had been burned last year, like Kyle mentioned, yep. or let's say a, a place that had been grazed and had or come back in weeds. Lightly disc Or lightly disc, It doesn't have to be that idle food plot. Mm-hmm. It's just some kind of disturbance. Where we were at, it was either burned or it was that old food plot or old two tracks yep. that had yep. been abandoned and came back in, in ragweed mm-hmm. and sunflower and broomweed. Bingo. That's probably where a brood was raised nearby. And so we found quail there. So that is a key point. I think Kyle was, was getting at that is, is uh, when you're hunting these larger native landscapes, these bigger landscapes where a covey may be harder to pinpoint, look for these disturbances, look for a vegetation change. We hunted a spot where there was a, they had had borrowed some soil to to do some habitat work or do something. I don't know. Right. They, they had taken some soil out of this spot. Well, it grew back in Forbes, and we found two giant coveys in that old borrow area. Right, there was <laughs> prairie around it. Sure, they were raised in the prairie, but they went to this borrow area to feed because there was tons of seed on the ground. So look for those vegetation changes. The point is, don't base your management on those so don't just borrow all your you know tear up your whole prairie but your bait your management should be based on good brood habitat but key in on those disturbance areas for hunting and that'll really pay off absolutely i think you guys are hitting the nail on the head what what may look like something uh, uh, finding a needle in a haystack from a prairie situation finding one covey one exact location it doesn't have to be like that you just need to be able to know what it is at this time frame, this window of the season, this this portion of the life cycle of a quail. What are the resources that they're utilizing? And let's say this this 400-acre prairie that you're going to walk through and hunt, really the key points, the key elements can be broken down and identified into maybe 20 acres of, of usable space at this time, at this window in that 400-acre unit. You know to concentrate your efforts as a hunter there but they need the whole 400 acres to persist across the entire year to make that hunt possible. We need to we need to have that same mindset from turkeys to deer. And, and as a hunter, when we're sitting in a tree stand or, or backs against the tree calling turkeys, don't place too much emphasis on that hunt and what that game species is doing to then make your ma- your habitat management changes in adaption we we learn a lot from watching game but that's probably a a hunting strategy change 
more so than a habitat management change or or tip that we can translate into what we're doing later on and on the property or, or where we're choosing to hunt it yeah that's uh it, i didn't mean to interrupt you kyle but but one of the things i was going to mention is uh, I, one of the things that i personally get a, a, a lot of satisfaction out of uh is is being a student mm. of these species that we're interested in if you're most interested in white-tailed deer Become a student of the white-tailed deer. Determine what they're doing. Figure out what they're doing every month of the year. You know, do research. You know, go online. Do, you know, don't just think about it from a hunting standpoint. Try to be a student of the species. We do the same thing with quail. We're, we try to want to know what quail are doing every day of the year. It helps us to be a better manager, certainly. Yes. Helps us to identify the bottlenecks or the or the or the shortcomings in our management, mm-hmm. but it helps us to become better hunters in the end, and it gives more satisfaction at the end of the day to become a student of whatever species you're interested in. And I think that's I think that's a key thing that 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 I would encourage folks to take a look at. Absolutely, Kyle. Anything to wrap up the podcast? Nope. Uh, just same old same old it comes back to diverse <laughs> natives right That's for it. the most part it's funny how we can always, we always incorporate that to a podcast <laughs> we always come back to diversity <laughs> man i love it well i'm excited for tomorrow to get uh, boots on the ground on this property um here in kansas it's gonna be fun and we'll have a, a wrap-up podcast there too of what our thoughts were what maybe our expectations were as we're looking over maps tonight um, and getting on the property and, and we'll bring that to you guys hopefully next week but uh, appreciate you guys listening uh, to this week's podcast be sure to uh, follow along on instagram facebook um, and on youtube as well guys more videos dropping and as we're getting back on the road quite a bit you'll see more vlogs from us traveling um, to these properties and giving you guys the the i don't want to say the bird's eye view but the on-ground view of what it is we're seeing and the recommendations that we're making to landowners across the country. So be sure to check that out. Guys, if you have any questions, be sure to email us at info at Land and Legacy. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.